one of the most noticeable facts of being here is how close we can become and do become, how much of a community we become without speaking to one another. We do the speaking, but you're really, for the most part, in silence. And yet, there's no doubt that all of you have have felt very close and connected and, and in some ways feel very intimate with one another. And we've been able to experience that closeness and intimacy because there's a certain shared understanding that we have with one another through our actions, through our being here, through our commitment, through our effort. We know something about one another, that we care about the Dhamma, that we're really looking at what causes us suffering. And we know that it's difficult, really, for all of us to do the practice. And so we have really created something here that is very precious and is very rare, actually. And as the retreat comes to its ending days and we anticipate the breaking of silence and the leaving here, already there's a little a sense of loss, that, that something is is going away from our experience. And it's not just the silence. You know, in a couple of days, we'll be breaking silence and you'll begin speaking with one another. And the silence itself is very precious and rare. But there's something else that gets lost once we begin talking and engaging in the activities of our life and sharing the distractions of our mind. (laughs) We start to see how diverse, how many directions we're all going. And, And we lose that sense of unity and sameness and cohesion, which is such a powerful condition for the work that we do here. Somehow in the silence we've been able to communicate with one another that which is most important to us. And when we begin speaking, we often lose that sense of what is most important to us. The Buddha's recipe for relief from suffering, the Eightfold Path, is, as you know, three trainings. The training in living in harmony, the training in calming the mind, and the training in developing understanding. And for the most part, we live here and we practice here, calming the mind and developing understanding. Of course, we're living in harmony because there is a very formal format to the retreat. 
the final exam of this retreat for each of you is can I maintain awareness, mindfulness, presence of mind in the give and take of speaking and activity when silence breaks? The format of the retreat is very powerful in supporting our looking deeply into our minds. But the conditions of the retreat are not the conditions that we live with all the time. And so we can't expect to have the silence and stillness and the other supportive conditions when we leave here. But one of the major practices when we're outside of retreat is practicing speaking carefully. Practicing speaking in a way that supports the harmony in our relationships, that comes from the place of stillness or calmness in our own minds, and expresses the understanding which we have worked so hard to discover. Tonight I want to speak about speaking, the practice of speaking, and some conditions for speaking in such a way as to acknowledge your commitment to the Dhamma. William Stafford is a poet that I appreciate a lot. And he's written a wonderful poem about speaking that I'd like to share with you. It's called The Ritual to Read to Each Other. If you don't know the kind of person I am, and I don't know the kind of person you are, a pattern that others made may prevail in the world, and following the wrong God home we may miss our star. For there is many a small betrayal in the mind, a shrug that lets the fragile sequence break, sending with shouts the horrible errors of childhood storming out to play through the broken dike. And as elephants parade, holding each elephant's tail, but if one wanders, the circus won't find the park. I call it cruel, and maybe the root of all cruelty, to know what occurs, but not recognize the fact. And so, I appeal to a voice, to something shadowy, a remote, important region in all who talk. Though we could fool each other, we should consider, lest the parade of our mutual life get lost in the dark. For it is important that awake people be awake, or a breaking line may discourage them back to sleep. The signals we give, yes or no, or maybe, should be clear. The darkness around us is deep. Words have power. What we say 
really does matter. The effect of what we say has both immediate and far-reaching impact and consequences. So we should consider carefully the motivation in speaking. And when I say motivation, I mean both the reason for speaking and the moment of speaking. Of course, we speak for many reasons. Sometimes loneliness compels us to speak. Sometimes we feel ill at ease with the quiet or silence. Sometimes our emotions erupt and need to be expressed. Sometimes the proliferating mind, who I am, what I want, what I want to become, what I believe, my opinion, demands to be expressed, acknowledged. The effect, or our intended effect, of speaking can be equally wide-ranging to inform, to connect, to share, to help, to impress, to brag, to deceive, to belittle, to confuse, to intimidate, threaten, titillate, excite, subdue, put down, shame, humiliate. All through words, what we say really matters. It's important to consider what it is you want from speaking. You want to be right? You want to be liked? You want to impress? You want to relieve the tension in your own mind? You want to share something that's really important and valuable to you? You want to just argue? It's difficult to know, really, what it is we want from speaking. I'm sure many of you have noticed, you know, something happens here and you get the idea to write a note to a teacher, to a staff member, to another yogi. And you get the paper and you get the pen and you sit down to write. So many possibilities flood through the mind. Which one do you pick? In the quiet of our own mind, or I should say in the noise of our own mind, we see how how many options there are in just writing a simple note. And yet, in the give and take of communication, talking, speaking, being in the the bustle and the hustle and the hubbub of everyday life, we often don't have that much time. And so the work we have done here to calm the mind and to look deeply at our motivations for simple actions, for speaking or not, for writing the note or not, seeing the motivation and seeing how subtle the motivation is and how pervasive Attachment, aversion, confusion really is. It's so important. It's not lost when we leave here and go back into the flow of our life, the everydayness of it. 
what we've seen here conditions deeply what we do after we leave here. The calmness and the understanding that we've developed supports our capacity and ability and our interest to live in harmony with one another. The Buddha said of speaking, better than a thousand hollow words is one word that brings peace. Would you trade a thousand words of whatever for one word if it brought peace to you or another? I want to speak about five conditions of words that bring peace. Words that have value. The Buddha said, when we speak, we should speak with a friendly heart. Whatever it is that we need to say, whether difficult or easy, can be said with a friendly heart. We can have metta, karuna, care, respect in our heart towards whom we are speaking, no matter what the message. Not always easy, as we know. Nevertheless, as I think Kamala mentioned the other night, Ram Dass's guru saying, whatever it is you have to do with one another, don't put them out of your heart. When we speak with a heart full of metta, we maintain and nourish our connection with one another. And it's the clarity of our intention to maintain the connection which will allow our words, even if difficult to hear, it will allow them to be heard. It's our intention to keep a loving heart makes a difference. Often, as you know, we don't. We get caught in some snarly situation and we're judging and blaming and criticizing and we've got to say something and it just demands to be said and we speak carelessly and our words cut to the heart and they have the effect of separating us from that, from those who we're speaking to, or separating others. In some way, our speech becomes very divisive. In Pali, that kind of speech is called pisunawada. Pisuna is a fiend or demon. And demons have that capacity to make us feel isolated, separate, cut off from one another. When we speak in such a way as to beguile, to deceive, to cheat, to defame, to malign, to harm the reputation of another, we're really cutting them out of our heart. 
we're taking them away. We're pushing them aside. Or when we speak to another about a third party, saying something about them that makes the listener change their relationship to them, feel a little differently, not so close. This is Bisunawada. One time when I was on staff here back in the late 70s, we used to, the staff used to undertake voluntary practices for a week or two, whatever the staff person of the week would choose as a practice, we would try to undertake it as a way of enhancing our mindfulness. In one week, the challenge was to not speak about absent people. To only speak to and about the person that you're with, or people that you're with. And if someone wasn't in the room, to not speak about them. And we all agreed to do this. And we had permission to remind each other that this is what our practice was for the week. It was impossible. We could be going on for a long time speaking about someone who wasn't there before one of us would remember, oh, this is our practice this week. Even if it was something beneficial, it doesn't always have to be harmful, it could be beneficial. It is such a deeply conditioned habit that is sometimes skillful, sometimes not. It's very difficult to see. One suggestion for, for really bringing this quality of speech into your awareness is to begin to notice really how often you speak about those who are not present. And then listen to what you're saying about them. And ask yourself, can you say to them what you say about them? And if you think you can, try it. That's a practice. Because so often, and it's, it doesn't even have to be critical. Sometimes we have very appreciative feelings about someone. And for some reason, it's equally difficult to share that with them. But often it's not appreciative comments. Or it's a little critical, it's a little judgmental, it's a little uh, difficult in some ways. Well, if, if we're unable to say it to them, what effect is it having on the person who's hearing it? It's a real litmus test for, is your speech and what you're saying coming from a place of respect and inclusiveness and connection to everyone? When we can speak with a loving heart and not divisively, then we become someone who is really a peacemaker, someone who supports the harmony of relationship that, that encourages and supports. Enjoying harmony in relationship. Speaking with a friendly heart.
A second condition for meaningful words is to speak in such a way that you can be heard, to speak gently. So much of what we convey is in the tone, the volume, uh, the content, and it can be really harsh, really difficult to hear, because it has a shaming message, or it has a dismissive tone, or it has a, a critical content that, that just makes it difficult to hear. Speech which is not gentle is harsh, crude, cruel, sometimes rough, fierce. This kind of speech is called furusawada in the Pali language. And it's used, and the effect of such, be, of such speech is to belittle someone, or to taunt them, or to shame them. But often, that's not our intent. It's more often just out of carelessness, where we speak in such a way that others feel, or another will feel, judged or belittled or criticized in some way. As we begin to pay more attention to our speech, and I should, should mention that really right speech is a practice as much as mindfulness of the breath is a practice. It takes paying attention, noticing, correcting, trying again, noticing, correcting, trying again, and really seeing the effect that our speaking has on ourselves and each other. When we're able to speak from a place of respect, gently, we create the conditions or we allow the conditions really for a feeling of intimacy, of closeness, of affinity with one another. Such speech puts ourselves and each other at ease. Speaking gently, and this is from the rules for the monks, when one speaks gently, they don't speak of others' faults. And when asked, they minimize or don't speak completely about their own strengths and virtues. But rather, to acknowledge whatever strengths and virtues others have, and to acknowledge one's own limitation. I'm reminded of the monks, the younger monks, or the junior monks in the monastery where I stayed in Burma. Upandita was the head of the monastery, the abbot. And he had invited uh, 15 or 20 junior monks to come to Rangoon and to study with him, to learn English, and to really train to be the next uh, group of teaching sayadars or teaching monks in the Mahasi tradition in which we teach. And 
they were, at that time, they were somewhere between 30 and 30, 30 to 35 years old. And most of them had been extraordinary scholars and practitioners. Most of them had been either first or second in the national exams in Burma. Most of them knew already how to speak pretty good English. And it all had practiced uh, in the tradition to some degree of realization. And so this was a little enclave of monks that kind of lived in one corner of the monastery. And their whole purpose was to just learn English and to uh, train to be, become missionary, really. I had occasion to spend time with them when I needed lessons on how to wear my robes and how to say what I had to say when I had to go to certain meetings, monastic meetings and things like that. And naturally, my curiosity, like, who were they, would uh, arise. And I'd kind of question them, well, uh, who are you? How'd you get here? And where'd you come from? And who's that? And where'd they come from? They would not speak about each other at all. You couldn't get... I mean, they're best of friends. They spend all day with each other, every day. And they know each other from years of living in the monastery. And yet, you couldn't get anything out of them. They weren't hostile. They weren't kind of unsocial. They just were very, very careful not to damage the fabric of their community. I think they really understood that careless speech tears the fabric of community. All it takes is one person speaking carelessly about others in the community and the harmony that is so supportive of awakening dissolves. They were so careful and living in a kind of harmony. I'm sure there was, I'm sure I didn't see everything. But nevertheless, for the most part, there was this wonderful feeling when I was able to spend time with them. A few years ago, when I first started preparing this talk, I looked through the monastic rules. You know, there's 227 rules for monks. Just to see how many of them had something to do with speaking. Two, let's see. 26 rules had to do with speaking so as to preserve the harmony of the community. 11 other rules had to do directly with the goal of purifying the mind. And there were 22 different kinds of speech that were identified as being um, not useful. There were more rules about speaking than any other topic. That's how important the harmony of the Sangha is in this process, in this endeavor that we're engaged in. So we have speaking with a friendly heart, speaking gently. Third condition for words of value is to speak the truth. 
This is the precept that we've undertaken here, the fourth precept, to refrain from speaking falsely in such a way as to deceive another. Even with as little speaking as you have been doing, you may have noticed how easily the truth is lost once we begin speaking. A commitment to honesty, or at least an attempt to be honest, is really essential in this practice. We're seeking to understand, to realize, to awaken to the truth, the way things are. That's our commitment. That's our practice. That's the direction of all of our efforts. It's said that a commitment to honesty or truthfulness was the one parami that the Bodhisattva kept throughout all his lifetimes while he was perfecting the qualities of the awakened mind in order to become a Buddha. Always spoke the truth. And sometimes it's very difficult to speak the truth. You may notice when silence breaks how much opportunity you'll have to speak about your practice. Oh, how's the retreat for you? And here's this invitation to really acknowledge how the retreat was for you. Interesting in this light. One of the monk's rules, one of the most important monk's rules, concerns speech. And it concerns speaking about your practice. Monks were prohibited from speaking about their practice falsely. In fact, if they did, they would be automatically disrobed, no longer able to be a monk, no longer to reordain in this lifetime. It was such a grievous offense <coughs> to the Sangha that, they were, that, the, that the Buddha said they weren't fit to remain in the community. Now, why would that be so? Why is speaking about your practice, truthfully, so vitally important? We all have some faith, some level of hope, some level of aspiration in practice, in the Dharma, in the teachings. Some of us have seen deeply and have confirmed for ourselves the truth of practice. Many have, are still on the path, looking, really, is this the way for me? And if they're deceived, if they're manipulated, if they're jerked around by careless speech about practice, the attainments in practice, the value of practice, we may damage their faith. And in damaging their faith, they may turn from the Dharma. They may turn away. They may not come back to the Dharma. We may put such a roadblock 
in their way. That they don't believe, they don't have the faith, they don't have the trust to continue practice. That's a a careless thing to do. That's a very damaging thing to do to someone. So when we have the opportunity to speak about our practice, as we will among ourselves, and when we leave here, you know, your partners, your roommates, your neighbors, your co-workers, hey, how's your retreat? What are you going to say? Okay. Rio Khan says, if you speak delusion, everything becomes a delusion. If you speak the truth, everything becomes the truth. Followers of the Buddha's way, why do you so earnestly seek the truth in distant places? Look for delusion and truth in the bottom of your own heart. Now I have two simple questions for you. Have you made a commitment to always speak the truth? Yes or no? Well, it's, 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 it's hard to say yes, isn't it? To always speak the truth. So then the follow-up question is, are you a liar? And it's hard to say yes to that too. So then the obvious question is, where are you? If we haven't made a commitment to speak the truth and we don't like to see ourselves as being a liar, well, truth when it's convenient, maybe. That's not good enough to awaken. When we awaken to the truth, we awaken to the whole truth. This is the way it is. I should say, Maybe making a commitment to speak the truth could be a worthy aspiration. Maybe we can aspire to speak the truth, knowing that it's very difficult. It's a practice. And as in every practice, there are times of progress, times of stagnation, and times of backsliding. Nevertheless, if we have it as an aspiration, we can reaffirm our commitment and pick it up again as a meaningful practice worthy of our effort. It's important to take into consideration the feelings, the welfare of others when we speak the truth. And to speak the truth in such a way that we don't use it to bludgeon someone with the truth or to dump our truth on someone, but rather to speak carefully, considerately. You remember the story about the boy who was sent out by his community to guard the sheep on the hillside. And he's out there watching the sheep, and he gets kind of bored, and he says, I'm going to play a trick on that, people. So he cries, wolf, wolf. And then the community folks, they come running out to protect their property, their sheep, from the wolf. And they come running out to see what's going on, and the little boy says, ha, ha, fooled you, no wolf. Oh, community go back to home and another day 
He's bored again and he says, maybe he's not bored, maybe he's just careless. He hollers, wolf, wolf. And the neighbors all come out to protect their property from the wolf. He was misleading them again. Ah, there really was no wolf. A couple days later, he's watching the sheep. Here comes a wolf. Starts to carry off the sheep. So he says, wolf, wolf. And all the people in town say, ah, he's just fooling us. There's no wolf out there. We won't go this time. They lost their property. This is what happens when we live in and accept deception. When we live in a society that tolerates deception. Being lied to. And now we look at our culture and we say, well, there's this whole advertising industry and there's the whole political machine that puts their spin on things in Washington. Living in this culture, living in this society where deception is so tolerated, it's so expected, it's, it's, it's a way of life. It has its conditioning effect on us. Each one of us is deeply conditioned to accept deception, not speaking the truth, not even expecting to hear the truth. Can we recognize that? Can we recognize what effect that has on us? How cynical we become? How disbelieving we become? How uncaring we become? One of the great conditions, really, of being here is that we undertake this this precept of speaking the truth. And so we have a reasonable expectation that what we hear from the teachers, from the staff, from each other, in our interviews, is the truth. We can put aside our cynicism, put aside our disbelief, rest in this place of trusting, easy trusting that what you hear is the way it is. And when we leave here, the guards go up again to protect ourselves from that onslaught of maybe, maybe not. We should see this carefully in our own heart, here and when we leave. So we have speaking with a heart full of metta, speaking gently, speaking the truth. A fourth condition for well-spoken speech is to speak what is beneficial. Even if what we say is true, is there any benefit to it? We should consider if it's worth saying. Sometimes we just speak out of Nervous habit, chit-chat, useless, frivolous, foolish, no purpose, just to fill up the silence. Such speech in Pali is called Sampapalapawara. It sounds like useless, frivolous, meaningless speech. Sampapalapawara. It's speech which has no purpose no value, 
no benefit to anyone. Now, of course, sometimes we just meet and greet and, and say hello and, well, what's the benefit of that? Well, it's just meeting and greeting. What is beneficial to speak about? What needs to be spoken about? The Buddha was asked what to speak about or what not to speak about. Because so much of what we do speak about is agitating, it's distracting, it's disturbing, it's enticing, it's bewitching, it's entangling. And that's the only purpose of it, is to bewitch, entice, confuse. So the Buddha suggested a list of topics that was unedifying, he said, for monks and nuns and those who were practicing to realize the truth. Listen carefully. Talk of kings and ministers, we might say politicians, robbers or other criminals, armies and wars, dangers, food, drink, clothes, beds, garlands, perfumes, cosmetics and jewelry, relatives, the opposite sex, the same sex, <laughs> heroes, the deceased, villages, towns, cities, countries, street and well gossip, philosophical speculation on being and non-being, <laughs> random and desultory chat with a lack that lacks a definite plan, a regularity, a purpose, and is not committed to anything. Well, that eliminates most TV, all news magazines, most fiction. What's left? Really, think about it. If you eliminated all of those topics from your speech, it'd be a quiet place. <laughs> However, the Buddha did offer a list of topics that were suitable for Dharma affairs. Now, you've got to remember that monks and nuns, when they're living in the monastery, that's their whole, their whole focus, really, is realizing the truth, awakening, and they're not creating any other life for themselves, or they don't need to create any other life for themselves. They don't need to earn a living as far as engaging in anything for income. They're just trying to wake up. So the Buddha suggested these topics for them. Talk on simplicity, contentment, seclusion, quiet and silence, stillness, strenuousness in the practice, virtue, concentration, understanding, deliverance, freedom. In essence, the Dhamma. So when you have the opportunity to go out with friends when you get home, you know, and you're, you're sharing a, a dinner in the restaurant and maybe having a glass of wine, you know, you could suggest, let's speak about contentment tonight. <laughs> really? Now, think about it. We're off on a rant about the news and what happened to you today and what happened to them today and kind of heading down that direction. And then all you got to do is throw in this little thing, you know, I've been feeling a lot of contentment lately. <laughs> Who could be so brave? Who among you really has the heart to try that. 
Well, let's be honest. It's not our topic of first choice, is it? Away from here. But here it really is. We see the value of talking about. It's, all, it's the only topics you've been getting here for either five weeks or three months. How to be content. How to be with the way things are. How to live simply. How to keep your mind simple. The, va- the, the value of, of keeping the precepts. It's important to talk about these things. It's meaningful. It's beneficial. It might be beneficial to those who haven't even been here. A few years ago, Guy and his wife and Sally came to our place in Maui and, and, and Carol Wilson also came, one of the other teachers. And the five of us took a couple of months to just practice together at home. And for the morning hours, we would each practice individually. In the afternoon, we would do the, the few things that each of us needed to do to maintain our life, answer our emails and a few phone calls and things like that. In the evening, we get together, talk after watching the sunset, we get together to, <laughs> to share our day. How was your day's practice? Have a cup of tea, sit together, listen to a talk. And really, that was the lifestyle we set up for ourselves for a couple of months. It was so important, so valuable to just have a time of day where the topic is Dhamma. Your Dhamma for the day. Listen to a talk. Share what it, share what it means to you or how it uh, helps you in the day. Such an important uh, but simple thing to do when we leave here. Speaking with a friendly heart, speaking gently the truth, that which is beneficial. There's one further condition for well-spoken speech that I want to speak about tonight. And that is speaking at the right time, speaking at the appropriate time. Speaking at a time when what you have to say can be heard. This is where our wisdom practice really is put to the test. To really understand the value of what we have to say, to, re- to check and see, is this, is this beneficial? Is it truthful? Can I speak with a, a friendly heart? And then to wait for the right time to say it. And to accept the possibility that the right time will never come. That maybe, even though it's true, beneficial, you can speak it gently, and you can speak it with uh, love in your heart for the recipient. Maybe there'll never be a right time. And to be at ease with that, to let that be okay. My teacher Upandita used to say, nothing is accomplished without patience. The Buddha said, Kanti paramam tapotitika. Patience is the supreme virtue. 
before any other rules were ever promulgated for the monks or nuns. One rule, be patient. So often our emotions erupt into our mind, into our consciousness, and within a split second, often without reflection, they're expressed. Often not the right time. Trying to exercise some restraint. Not because it's wrong or bad, but because we know and see that when we speak with that impulse or without reflection, often what we have to say can't be heard. The words are heard, but the meaning is not gotten. So to forbear our own anger, our own judgment, our own opinion, until it's appropriate, until there's a time when the one who is going to hear it can receive it, can, can open to it, so that we can speak it in such a way that they can hear it. Now we've been here in the silence for some time, speaking about the Dhamma. When you leave here, you'll be asked about the Dhamma. Your understanding of the Dhamma, your practice of the Dhamma, your realization of the Dhamma. When is the appropriate time to speak about the Dhamma? Someone casually just says, oh, how's your retreat? You might answer with a casual reply. But if someone is really interested, sincerely curious, and they ask you about your practice, they ask you about your experience, then you might consider offering a little more. A casual inquiry deserving a casual response. A more sincere inquiry inviting a more thoughtful, comprehensive response. However, a cocktail party is not the proper place to speak about the Dhamma. Now why is that? You know what a cocktail party is like. Naomi Shihab Nye wrote a great poem about cocktail parties. I don't have it here. Nevertheless, sometimes we don't have all our faculties with us when we're at a party like that. And we might share our most meaningful, sincere, honest, insightful articulation of the Dharma. And the person out on the other end says, huh, okay, and dismisses it, just like that. What's that do to you? What's that do to your faith, your trust, your understanding of the Dharma? When someone who maybe you value and appreciate dismisses it out of hand, is insignificant. Our faith in the Dharma is fragile. Here, after three months or six weeks, of course you have a lot of faith in the Dharma, a lot of understanding, a lot of commitment, a lot of energy for the Dharma. And you think, I'll never turn from this path or this practice. This is it for me. 
everything changes. And our faith in the Dharma can also be damaged, can also be threatened by carelessness, by those who don't see, don't understand, don't appreciate as we do. So be careful where you share your Dhamma, choosing the most appropriate time, those whom to share it with. When we speak with a loving heart, we become a peacemaker. When we speak kindly, gently, we can be open and intimate. When we speak the truth, we're reliable, trustworthy. And when we speak what's beneficial, we become a spiritual friend to others. In this way, our words can be effective. Our words can be important. Our words can be a practice of awakening for ourselves and others. But it's a practice. It's not easy. As soon as the silence lifts, habits come rushing into the mind first. Our practice is to keep a little mindfulness around us. To recognize when we're present and when we're just running on automatic pilot. In the coming days when silence breaks, there'll be an opportunity, of course, for all of you to speak with all of you. And sometimes it can get pretty intense, pretty loud, pretty interesting. The Navajo have a useful phrase, a useful understanding of speaking in groups. They know that at times we get full. We get full of words and we can't take any more in. And that may happen to you in the coming days. So here's a a suggestion or the Navajo's practice of recognizing when you're full and what you need to do. You can say, I go now. And all of us will understand. You're not bored with the conversation. You're not critical of the conversation. You're not unfriendly to the person who's speaking. You're just full. You've got no more room for many more words. And they won't even feel self-conscious about it. You can just say, I go now. And uh, an essential tool for practicing right speech. I go now. So let's sit for a moment. Let the words go now. So I appeal to a voice, to something shadowy, a remote, important region in all who talk. Though we could fool each other, we should consider. 
lest the parade of our mutual life get lost in the dark. For it is important that awake people be awake, or a breaking line may discourage them back to sleep. The signals we give, yes or no, or maybe, should be clear. The darkness around us is deep. So thank you for listening to the Dhamma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.